Morrison has to go. That's what millions around the country are hoping for come the 21st of May. The reasons are too many to list here, but let's just mention the coalition's inaction on climate, the inaction on fighting sexism, the inaction on ending poverty or racism or homelessness or low pay. There's a lot of inaction to share around. So kicking out the coalition is the easy answer. What's more challenging is how we do it and what we expect and demand from an Albanese Labour government. And to discuss the issues, I'm joined by three people who have been guests on this series before. Cosmos Samaras is a former Victorian ALP campaign director who is now a director at Redbridge Group, a research and consulting organisation. Celeste Little is an Arenda woman, a union activist, social commentator and the Greens candidate for the federal seat of Cooper in the northern suburbs of Melbourne. And James Supple is the editor of Solidarity magazine and an activist with the Refugee Action Coalition in Sydney. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Nam or Melbourne. So welcome, comrades. Good afternoon, comrades. Thank you for having us. Thanks, David. Thanks for your time. All right, well, let's kick off with something that has been something of a characteristic of the first three, three and a half weeks of the campaign, and that's what's been referred to as Labour's small target politics. Some have gone further and actually said it's no target politics. Now, is that fair? Is it smart politics? Is it actually going to get us a Labour government? Cos, what do you think? I think it is... uh a product of what Labor has experienced in the last several elections where they have been picked apart by their opponents, their traditional opponents, uh, on a range of policy positions they have taken and the powers to be within their within their organisation have decided to embark on a, an approach which is uh, defined as a small target strategy. It, it potentially can be a, a significant problem because the electorate, is starving for for um, for vision, and, and they've just survived and come out of a pandemic. Uh, and and when I say that, in, in our journeys, talking to hundreds and hundreds of Australians across the country, doesn't matter what political colours that these people may be may may belong to or where. It, it's the overwhelming sense is they are they are just wanting their their leaders to. Uh, be bold uh, and uh, lead their country uh, into the future with a different form of politics. That's what they're starting for. And this is why you see you know, the popularity of Jacinta Ardern, for example, where there's a, there, there is a, um, a general, there's a very significant appetite amongst the population for a different style of politics to be, to, to, um, to, to be to be put out there by political parties, and I think as a result of Labor not in, not embarking on that approach, you've seen that general malaise within the primary votes of the two major parties right now. So you don't see that. What we saw in South Australia, for example, with Peter Mazanowskis, there was a direct transfer of support from the coalition to Labor. You could see there was a there was a mood for significant change. That's absent at the moment. And so do you think there's a risk, and this is a question to anybody, uh, that Albanese can once again snatch defeat from the jaws of victory? The thought of three more years of an ultra-smirking Morrison just makes my blood run cold. Celeste? Yeah, look, I, I think there is a real danger of that. And I have to agree with what um, Paz said there about starving for inspiration. I think that the electorate is disillusioned. They've gone through a very rough time where, you know, when it hasn't been the pandemic, it's been, um, it's been the bushfires or the floods and people are feeling disengaged. Um, 
and we have also throughout the pandemic seen that that change you know at, is possible the that politicians can make a decision like they did with increasing um um job seeker for allowance overnight for example um in order to in order to boost what people were living on and boost the economy during the um economic downturn of the pandemic um we can see that you know that change can happen and that there is a real will for change to happen but um when when focusing on small targets or just focusing even on um yeah morrison's got a horrible smirky little face there but if that's the only focus that he's horrible um and the electorate itself isn't being terribly inspired by what they're being offered then then where do they go where do their votes go they're going to they're going to start looking for alternatives that do inspire them. Um, you know, every and there's there are a lot of alternatives out there that are running um, that will inspire the electorate for reasons I both agree with and don't agree with. <laughs> James, what's your take? Yeah, I mean, I agree that it's possible to to win elections and to be popular actually promising change. I mean, I think. I think that was the idea behind what Labor was trying to do in 2019. You know, we've seen, you know, I think done the right way, like someone like Jeremy Corbyn or Bernie Sanders have shown that it actually is possible to, to win support by generating a momentum for change in a sense that uh, something's actually possible through politics. I think that's that's part of the, you know, the difficulty we face in, in this election, that there is a distrust of politicians and a cynicism that anything will really change. And I think not... Not actually offering very much a small target strategy plays, you know, plays into that um, that idea that nothing can, can kind of be delivered. Uh, yeah, whereas I think Cos has pointed to like there's positive examples in other places around the world that show that you know you can actually win support through through promising change. Um, so I think that there's a danger. Uh, nonetheless, I think if you look at the, all the indications at the moment uh, that. It's, it's much more likely than not that Labor is going to, to win the election, and we very much hope that that is the case. Uh, and in that respect, I think the other danger with the, the small target approach is what it means for what comes after the election. You know, I mean, given how much Morrison is on the nose and how, you know, many times he's put his foot in it, how many times he's insulted, you know, different groups of people over the last three years, I think, I think it's, you know, it's, it's very likely that he will lose the election. But... What a small target strategy means, I think, after the election is that the kind of change we're going to see from Labor will be very, very modest, and we're looking at, um, you know, a government that, that will disappoint any expectations or or hopes of change. Um, I think you can see that, you know, through any of the, the areas where Labor has offered some some little uh, element of change, like it's very, very modest and, and mediocre, and I think that's one of the other real dangers. What it will mean is that even if we get rid of Morrison, we're not actually not going to see, you know, we're going to see a fairly right-wing Labor government which will turn around and say that it can't actually change anything because it has no mandate and uh, people didn't vote for change. I, I do want to add a little something, if I may. Um, look, there, there is one other thing that I find particularly uninspiring and that is that if, um, if Albanese does end up in a position where he could form a government but from a minority position, the fact that he's ruled out um, some sort of coalition with the Greens several times now in the media and said that it won't happen um, is a bit of a problem. You know, it's kind of like not only not only are we going for small targets, but we're not willing to challenge, not willing to be challenged by parties that are more progressive um, than us in order to form a government that might drive change forward. Um, so yeah, yeah, you know, the risk that um, the risk that he might snatch defeat from the jaws of a victory, um, if that attitude kind of continues and they do end up in that situation, I think is is really real. I'm assuming that none of you subscribe to the view that Labor supporters often have, which is 
It's smart politics. They're going low key for the election to keep, you know, to, not to scare the media, but just watch what will happen once they're elected. Do you think there's any danger cause of Albanese ripping off, you know, his um, his modest suit and revealing that he's a, a superman of change after the election? Um, look, I think I think that, that there, there is always a possibility of that actually occurring when you, you look at... I would say um, the transformation that Daniel Andrews took went on, on the social front mm. once he got elected, right, where he embraced a whole range of social policies, which, of course, if you were to ask anyone within the Labor ranks back in 2013, would that ever happen? The answer would have been no. Uh, and, he's, and he does it now on a regular basis without fear or favour. And um, so power does, does, can provide... The progressive side of politics something quite unique if the leaders themselves are, are prepared to take the risk. The problem we have is that um, my expectation is that the road to victory for Labor is one of a narrow path at this stage. Uh, it it uh, will involve having to form a coalition or deal with independents and, and, and the Greens, um, and that is really the only path available to them at the moment. Three weeks to go, things could change, but with a primary in the mid-30s and um, full disclosure, I, you know, our, our, our operation does a, a, a lot of polling, probably more than most public pollsters. We have a fair idea what's going on across the country and there, it is very, very patchy. And so I'm more confident that I don't see Morrison forming a majority government even if he gets close to minority government, he, he has a problem, and that is that the if the Teal independents get up, the the price they'll ask from from his government, he won't be able to pay. Um, and and so yeah, I think that um, if Albanese wins, he, I think uh, it will be a minority government, and I think that in turn will probably force him to be a bit more bold. Because I think that the, the, the some of the, requ the requests from other parties will be pretty significant. Now, uh, one or two of you mentioned the sort of the malaise, um, the uninspiring nature of the election campaign. Seems to me one reason for that is that the unions have taken a lower and lower profile than they've done in previous elections. Even though we have so much to gain from a Labor government potentially rolling back at least elements of the anti-union laws, although, of course, that wouldn't happen automatically. Then you think back to 2007, one of the reasons that Rudd got in was the enormous wave of activity around the Workplace Relations Act. There were political strikes. Three of us live in Melbourne. We know that there were 100, 120,000 striking workers on the streets against the Workplace Relations Act. It really lifted and gave momentum to the Kevin Rudd campaign. Even three years ago, we had the Change the Rules campaign, which at least had a focus on the needs of workers. I have to say this time around, the union campaign has been negligible. It's added nothing to the momentum. What's going on here? I can probably just quickly, oh. I, I, I've got a bit of insight that might help you. So I think, look, I've done some work with the union movement in, in this space about how political they are, they should be, and whose side they should take. There is a there is a level of criticism within the broader Australian community that they are seen as a labour outfit, and they need to be a bit more um, removed from that. So I think that what you're seeing is a product of uh, a bit of that as well. James, yeah, I mean, I think the union movement's been careful you go right back to the your rights at work campaign to run an independent campaign which was not you know simply sending people out to uh, campaign for labor but actually running a union you know specific effort to the door knock and to uh, you know staff polling booths and run election forums and so on and i think that that's kind of continued but i think uh it is striking what david says even if you compare to, to 2019 um, I mean, one obvious reason I think is the, the demobilisation that we saw as a result of the, the pandemic, which still lingers, I think. So, uh, you know, 
like last time at least around in Melbourne there were you know union at least a big union delegates meeting and, and a major demonstration kind of before the election that sort of happened, happened this time and I think some of the you know the kind of politics that people talked themselves into during the pandemic that it wasn't possible really to mobilize I think fed into that general demobilization which has affected all uh, social movements uh, yeah but I also think you know the the lesson that um you know, the mistaken lesson I think that, that unions drew go right back to, to rights at work was that they saw the effective side of uh, campaigning simply the uh, electoral operation, so actually going out into marginal seats, and I think downplayed the importance of the, the mobilisations in terms of the delegates' meetings and the demonstrations in generating a sense that there could be change and that there was a movement that was actually going to go out there and help make it possible. And I think that sort of effort to actually generate enthusiasm for change in a sense that it that it's possible, I think, you know, it's, that's one of the reasons that I think it's lacking at this election, that I think the unions could play a much bigger role in, in terms of, you know, that, that importance in terms of mobilisation of protests and, and so on. Um, I mean, having said that, it's true the ACTU is not at a, a national level running a, a campaign, but there are some positive examples, at least in, in New South Wales at the moment, in terms of there's uh, been a succession of nurses' strikes, the teachers are out here on strike uh, again, this week, uh, you know, there's a strike at Sydney University happening for 48 hours next week, um, and there's the United Workers Union cleaners have also voted to take um, industrial action in, in three states uh, just a few weeks out from the election. So I think there's, um, you know, it'd be, it'd be better if there was a, a kind of nationwide effort to mobilise, but there are still some, you know, positive elements in terms of a number of unions that are taking strike action. And I think it's it's importantly in some of the areas too where uh, workers have really been at the um, have really been savaged during the pandemic in terms of some of the essential workers in nurses and teachers who um, you know went above and beyond during COVID and some of them were at the you know, particularly in terms of nurses like um, in some of the most dangerous roles during the, the pandemic uh, who are you know now trying to get out and mobilise and I think that that does have a, a positive effect in terms of you know generating some enthusiasm um, and hope for change. Yeah, look, I, um, I'm probably going to go a little off the rails here. I'm speaking both as a union organiser, um, as a former um, rank-and-file activist, as a current rank-and-file activist, um, and as somebody who's been in the belly of the union beast now for... for um, a very long time. I've been a union organiser for 11 years. Um, and the Your Rights at Work campaign, um, it was, I think that that was successful because it built off momentum. There'd been so many attacks on workers' rights from the Walkies dispute to the higher education workplace relations reforms, which was the, which was kind of a, proto work choices if you like um, trying to force people in higher education onto individual workplace agreement contracts and then and then um, then work choices which was that idea spread out more broadly across more industries and um, there was an ability for unions to get out there and talk about talk to workers about how their rights are under attack. I, I was critical as an organizer back when um, back when uh, change the rules was going on um, at the last election because it's for me um, as somebody trying to mobilize people as an activist and, and all that there's a big difference between talking about fighting for your rights versus fighting for rules you know, and I'm not necessarily sure that the message got it completely right for the last election. Um, the other, the other thing that um, the the union movement right now is facing is nationally only about ten to fifteen percent of workers are members of a union. Yet sixty percent of workers benefit from union negotiated agreements. Um, so union membership is at an all-time low, um, but but when it comes to this election, um, 
And again, um, I'm going to be critical here. Um, if it, if the campaign's just going to focus on Morrison and where Morrison has failed, and tell voters that um, you know, tell voters in marginal seats that their vote for um, for the United Australia Party or for the One Nation Party, if they're disillusioned um, with with the Labor Party, for example, is really just a vote for the Liberal Party, um, then it's not necessarily educating people on on how preferential voting works um, for starters. And it's also not activating people, like activating people against one bloke um, when there's been so many attacks and when we have such a social malaise that we could actually be drawing upon, mobilising on and activating on, um, to me doesn't make an awful lot of sense. So we've really got to go out there and talk about social policies and how people's lives have been impacted, how casualisation um, is impacting impacting the income and the security of so many people, how... Um, how people like, you know, um, the billionaires and Harvey Norman and all of that increased their profit margins during COVID whilst people were losing their jobs all over the country. Um, we've got to be talking about that sort of stuff and, um, and what might happen if workers mobilise and how we can get together and push to change that. And I don't necessarily think that... Um, they're just focusing on when Morrison wasn't there is the right way to go about that. Okay, well, about an hour before we started recording this podcast, interest rates went up for the first time in 12 years. And of course, there's the, the saying in mainstream politics, it's the economy stupid. Because has today's rate rise crueled the chances of the Liberals? Or do people not know who to blame when their pay is low and inflation is high? Is it Has politics degenerated to the point that nobody is quite sure why these things happen and what to do about it? I think that the, the majority of the electorate uh, has a view that the Liberal Party is better placed at managing the economy in suppressing interest rate rises. It's a natural sort of brain, brain space for them, not as strong as it used to be under Howard. Um, uh, you know, 1.2 million Australians today are going to discover that for the first time in their life, since they've actually obtained a mortgage, they're going to they're going to incur an interest rate rise and have to see how that um, affects their bottom line. The biggest, in my opinion, the biggest, one of the biggest class struggles in this country is what is going on with property at the moment and and home ownership. And that extends to people who are renting as well. Um, it has become obscenely out of control. Um, and, and most people that we talk to, it doesn't matter from what political side they sit on, this is the number one issue they are concerned about because they know that it will affect their kids, even if they've got a mortgage themselves. I have lost count how many people in the outer suburbs have told me and in regions that I now have come to the to the to, to the reality that I will die with the debt. My children will not inherit anything but my debt. Um, so a lot of uh, media focus on um, the family bank. That's that's for the wealthy, right? Parents who've got money who can then assist their kids. The vast majority, sixty five percent to seventy percent of Australians, are going to potentially go to their graves with that debt. Uh, we've done some analysis on how long it takes for someone to pay off the average mortgage in Sydney, for example, where it sits on about 600,000 um, with a low income. It's 35 years. On the condition you don't get sick, you don't fall ill, you don't lose your job, right? Anything, anything happens in your life that stalls your repayments, that blows out. So it's not 35 years is best case scenario. Um, and so I think today's interest rate rise is just going to compound people's stress. 
they're going to be angry at the coalition. They're going to be angry at all political parties. And I think the point, you know, Celeste was talking about how people are jumping onto these minor parties as in minor right-wing parties. It's actually not because they believe what those idiots are talking about. It's just that they are incredibly frustrated um, because they see that, to, that, that, that established party politics in this country is not addressing these, these massive issues that they are confronting in their own homes. Perhaps we can look at the issue from the angle of low pay because obviously one of the difficulties in paying a mortgage or even getting a mortgage um, is low pay and insecurity. Inflation has just hit 5.1%. Most workers who are going into battle are still fighting on the wrong terrain, even where they're fighting. It's often around pay rises, which are pitched at the 2 2.5%. James, what, what should... What do we need to do now? What do workers need to do now to begin to shift the situation? Well, I think we need obviously a much higher level of uh, union industrial campaigning and you know use of the the most important weapon that workers have in terms of strikes. And you know, I mean, that has to be obviously coupled with a significant effort to fight for higher pay rises when inflation's at five percent. Like unions should be demanding like well north of that, like seven and eight percent uh, pay rises. I mean, we've got to remember this comes off the back of 10 years of wage stagnation where rate, wages have, you know, gone backwards slightly for, for most people. Um, you know, and I think, you know, the kind of action that, that nurses are starting to take in New South Wales or teachers are taking in, you know, New South Wales to, to fight some of those state government pay caps, which still hear cap, um, pay rises at 2.5% despite inflation being double that. Um, and, you know, like there are... Um, you know, like some good examples of campaigns that have actually uh, won things, like transport workers won a higher pay rise last year after a series of, um, you know, stop works across um, the industry there. Um, United Workers Union and a whole series of places have been willing to, to take like, action and has actually, you know, pushed up pushed up pay. And I think in that respect, the best thing Labor could actually do to help that process to deal with the issue of cost of living would be to unshackle the unions to get rid of the, the anti-strike laws, the laws that you know impose secret ballots and make it very difficult for unions to actually to, to take serious strike action. Um, you know, short of that, I think the, the union movement has to uh, make a much um, greater effort, effort to, to defy the laws where it has to, where it's necessary to actually take um, effective strike action because anyone who's a unionist knows that um, it ties up every industrial campaign in mean, knots trying to, to jump through all the hoops that you have to d jump through to actually take uh, industrial action. Um, but I think that's the, the biggest thing that could be done to, to push around the issues of cost of living. Um, I think mean also, like, in terms of what Cost was saying about uh, housing, I mean, the, I mean, Labor's promised a few things, but the overriding issue is that nothing is going to be done about negative gearing, um, even some of the modest things Labor was talking about last time, if you want to look at why and when it was that house, rise, house prices started to you know, soar way out of whack with um, average wages was when you know, those, those changes to capital gains tax and negative gearing were put in by the, by the Howard government. Like That has to be reversed if you want to actually push down the, the obscene kind of um, property prices that, um, that we're seeing at the moment. I, I, I'm going to talk quite personally. I am... Um... I, I've lived in the area that I've lived in for the better part of 25 years. I'm a lifelong renter, um, and I've never, never owned a house. Um, and the reason for that, and you know, unlike um, Cost is talking about people not having, um, not having any sort of wealth to then pass on to their children, which is what you know some generations before us were, were able to do, were able to, to pass it on. Um, not an awful lot in my family, being that, um, being that you know, we're always, Aboriginal people have always been chronically underpaid, if paid at all. But, um, but yeah, it's not a guarantee that people will be able to pay. But I, I'm partnered, I'm childless, I have a good job, and I've had a steady income for a long time. And I still don't have a mortgage. I don't have a house. I don't own one. I've been renting that entire time. Um, and once I got out of university and accumulated that debt and then went back to university a couple more times to 
to reskill, to increase my knowledge base um, and accumulated more debt that I'm still paying off. Um, yeah, being middle-aged and having having a modest amount of savings but not enough to actually, you know, put a decent deposit down on a house um, in this area, which was which was a solid, as people know, a solid working class area. It's been gentrified somewhat over um, the last last generation or two, but this is a solid working class area full of post-World War II migrants, um, high Indigenous population, that, you know, a university population that works. Um, in, in this electorate just recently, we had a one point sorry we had a house a weatherboard house that had that had been completely burnt out inside that sold for 1.2 million dollars um at auction and a burnt down you know probably asbestos ridden place um selling for that much what chance has the average sort of working person got to put a roof over their heads we are so far from so far removed from the harvester decision we're so far removed from these things you know the ability to put a roof over your head um to to feed and um feed and support a family um in this day and age and with um with rising rates of casualization like my entire working career has been based around the, my my main working career has been based around the university sector um, where casualisation rates at some unis are hitting 80% of the teaching load. Like, you know, job surety, um, the the uberization of working, as they call it, where, where gig economy workers are, are logging onto apps and then logging off in order to just supplement they're very basic sort of um, incomes. Um, we saw COVID go ripping through the aged care sector because people, during wave two um, in Victoria, because people were working multiple jobs in, in um, nursing homes that were low paid, um, low paid jobs in order to just survive. Um, and so transferring it between workplaces, like, yeah, there's just so many, so many issues. I feel like we need to fight back against the casualization of work. We need to fight back against um, the the lack the gig economy and the lack of protections for workers. For that, we need to do a lot more about organizing gig economy workers um, because because the spread of hours for work has grown substantially also since the harvester decision <laughs> um, and. And we do, there's, there is so much that needs to be done. But there's also um, the, the gap between rich and poor and how much that has grown in the last couple of generations is, is incredibly astounding. Um, yeah, yeah. I, there's just so much that, that jumps out at me. Um, but, but billionaires increasing their wealth in, in the pandemic when people were losing their jobs is always something that I'm going to come back to. It's, that's, that's a big failing in policy. We're all nodding away. But I, I think uh, I'd like to move us on to another topic because time's ticking on. Because you mentioned that, you know, one of the big brand items for the Liberals is supposedly their ability to manage the economy. The other thing they're meant to be strong on uh, it's meant to be part of their brand is national security. And yet we've seen some really weird stuff happening around the question of China. So first up, I should say it's very scary the extent to which there's fear mongering and, and warmongering going on. Peter Dutton leading the charge in particular, the AUKUS Treaty, meaning that Australia is on track to spend $170 billion on nuclear powered submarines. But in the context of the election, the China stuff has taken on some 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 unexpected shape. So when Morrison accused Albanese of always backing China in front of of all places a Sky TV 
hand-picked audience and the audience groaned because they couldn't believe how stupid Morrison was being, we're beginning to see some interesting, you know, uh, elements work their way through. So what's going on in your mind? Ah, I can I can tell you, look, you know, that again, going back to the countless conversations we have with punters around, around the country, that grown? 100%. The, mo- most of the public in this country has a very sophisticated view about the world around them. The media seem to think that they don't, right? Parts of the media that feed this mindset that, no, no, we've got to have a bad and good cop and we've got to have someone to fight all the time. No, 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 no. Most people are concerned, first of all, that China is one of our our major trading partner and and we're uh, um, (coughs) creating an environment where this is going to jeopardise employment and... Uh, people's opportunities to, 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 to run their businesses and so on. That's the first layer. Second layer, people know what war means. Um, they know that it, it equates to basically the small person dying on the battlefield and, 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 they, and they know it. Um, and there's no romanticism that exists in most Australians' minds about what this actually means. So the groan is all, all wrapped up into that. Like, you know, we know what you're up to. We know you're playing this uh, to get political points, and we're sick of it. And I think that um, uh, I think that them trying to play that that national security card in the middle of election is just not going to wash with the Australian public anymore. Um, the one thing I would say is the, there are many negatives about the internet, many negatives. But when it first hit hit, hit the deck, and I'm young, yeah, I'm old enough to remember when it did. There was, a, there was a mantra at the time that this is going to democratise the circulation of information. And it did, and it has. And you could see it in a thousand different ways across the country and across the Western world in particular, and across the world, where people are a lot more savvy and switched on and understand the world around them, and they don't like getting treated as fools. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's encouraging that, uh, you yeah. know, National security isn't working in the way for the Liberals that they might they might hope. But on the other side, I think there's a problem that has been accepted across the media and most of the mainstream debate that you know there is a problem with China and China is a threat, uh, and that Labor has accepted like all of the Liberals like military spending, you know, obscene amounts of money, the 170 billion dollars for the nuclear subs, like another 10 billion for a base for them on the east coast, you know, another couple of billion for you know, um, so for guided missiles and missile production, and and a whole bunch of other things too. Uh, you know, the you know setting military spending at um, a minimum of two percent of, of GDP, which is like forty five billion dollars every year, uh, and going you know north of that. Uh, but I think this idea that that there is a threat from China, I think, still is accepted, even if people, yeah, I think. Uh, worried about the implications in terms of trade uh, with China. And I think that's quite a dangerous development, that uh, that this military escalation in terms of Australia's military build-up has, been, has become a, is a bipartisan policy. Um, you know, if Albanese is elected, he will simply continue that. And I think that does create a more dangerous world and a more dangerous situation that actually fans the flames of conflict in the region and, you know, is really about egging on the, the US to step up its confrontation uh, with China. You know, so we've got two nuclear-armed states that are squaring off against each other, and we know already that the US sees that as the, you know, the conflict that's going to define uh, this century. So I think uh, it's encouraging that, you know, that I don't think the Kharkiv election stuff is really working for the Liberals. But on the other hand, out of this, we've, we've had a, you know, a bipartisan consensus develop about the need to confront China about a massive military escalation to do so. Celeste, uh, oh, no, Coles, go, go for it. Yeah, just quick, just just quickly on the Labor side, I think what you'll find if they are elected, they'll be a lot more um, discreet and mature in their approach with China. Um, I think that there is a lot of value in, in, in diplomacy and, and an effort made by our political uh, our elected leaders to at least attempt to cool things down a bit. Um, 
I just don't. Th- I think what is going on on the coalition side right now is that they are amping this up because they think it wins them votes, um, yeah. and it's it's not. But Coles, can I just put to you that a, a little bit more discretion, a bit more diplomacy, bringing down the temperature, that's great, but doesn't actually commit commissioning eight nuclear-powered submarines no. whose role is basically to sit just off the Chinese coast in the South China Sea. That does not, that's not very diplomatic to me. No, it's not. No, absolutely not. <laughs> Celeste, any, any views on this? Look, I don't have an awful lot to add, um, and I think that I think that the conversation with the other two has been pretty robust. But I I will say, you know, that um, that as somebody who who has spent um, a lot of time marching for marching in anti-war protests, um, you know, fighting for peace for one of a better term. Um, and and is also a traditional owner um, of Mbantua and Surrounds or Alice Springs and Surrounds, where where Pine Gap has lived for such a such an incredible long time. Um, yeah, buying. Um, I guess buying that this is the, a huge threat when. Um, when the military industrial complex complex exists when when you know there's there's a lot of money um that gets funneled into america increasing its power australia being an ally with america increasing its power and um and then devoting a bunch of working class bodies to those sorts of fights um I on on that side, that's where I find the biggest threat. Um, yeah, with you know, I don't I don't necessarily I, I I do question why it is that they are talking about this threat, and I can't help but think that um, that Australia's deep seated xenophobia and um, and you know and fear fear of the the fear of the um, Orient, Oriental, or you know, whatever, or any other groups coming in that um, that don't look like white Australia, um, or ally, sorry, threats from groups that don't look like white Australia um, are somehow different. Yeah, I think the question of racism is um, a very good way of taking us on to the next question I wanted to raise. And that is the, it's almost like a joke term now, um, uh, the idea of wokeness. Um, A couple of weeks ago, uh, Albanese appeared on the front cover of the Daily Telegraph in Sydney with the headline, I'm not woke. And he went through a quick checklist, a pop quiz of topics where he basically made, made it clear that he was as conservative as he could be when I think we would all agree insofar as there's an idea of being woke, it's really about contesting horrible ideas around racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia. But woke is clearly a line on which uh, the media wants to run and Albanese prostrated himself on the front of the Telegraph. I found it incredibly humiliating for him, but also very damaging for the people who he was implicitly uh, leaving, letting go. James, you're in Sydney. And insofar as the issue of woke has really taken on a sharp edge, it's uh, Catherine Deves in Warringah, the captain's pick, who has turned out to be um, a really nasty piece of work on this issue. How How is the debate working its way through in Sydney itself? Around transphobia, obviously, I'm talking. Well, I think it's been a real spoke in the wheels for Morrison's effort to push a transphobic agenda in the election. I mean, he handpicked Catherine Deves as the candidate in Warringah, and I think he thought that this was going to be a nice little way of pushing the barrow about, uh, you know, transphobia in general. She would push her campaign about excluding trans women from from sport. But I think the the revelations of the, really the scale of the, of, the, of the bigoted comments that she posted on social media, I think, has caused lots of problems for that because it's really exposed what that 
agenda is about, you know, I mean, someone who says that she's triggered by the rainbow flag, by the, by the pride flag, I mean, it's pretty clear where this person is coming from. I mean, she now says that she wants to have, uh, you know, like a, uh, a debate about this, where she, she's not going to be, like she wants to have a measured debate about it. Um, but I think she's already, she's already shown her hand and I think uh, it's meant that Morrison actually has had to, to back off. He's backed off from his, uh, you know, support for the, the private members bill about this and it's meant he hasn't been able to use the, the issue in the same way that perhaps he hoped he'd be able to during the election. I think Catherine Dees is just an embarrassment, like she's running from the cameras whenever they, they appear. Um, I mean, I think it's made it more difficult to actually push that transphobic agenda. But I think it has been positive in that it's actually exposed that, you know, this is not a reasonable debate, that actually it does come from a, a position of, of bigotry um, and that, that that is the agenda underlying this. Celeste, Coz, not just on trans, but generally, I mean, yeah. how, I, why aren't some of the issues, sexism is obviously incredibly important, why aren't these more front and centre? Why is it only the Teal independents who seem to be talking about, um, for instance, uh, the situation for women? It's been going on for such a long time. Like, you know, woke is just the latest term. I think to describe what has been a, a long growing tension in Australia. Um, we saw it really play out during the Howard years, during the culture and history wars, um, when, when, you know, the history wars in particular, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were trying to educate the general public of things like massacres and the frontier wars and, um, and the stolen gens and everything else. And um, it got labeled black armband history and and Howard took that term and ran with it. Um, you know, and the culture wars that played out in Australia meant that there was a lot of dialing back of any of the, um, any of the social justice rights have been fought for in the generation before, you know, that it's sort of, that it's sort of, um, come in on a, oh, sorry, the, that was the wave that Whitlam had run in on that um, Fraser had to continue on and that, you know, was then um, taken up or ignored in various ways by Hawke Keating. Um, yeah, now it's, now it's just the same thing but kind of rebadged. And I feel like the, this, this appeal, um, this argument that, I mean, that front page was ridiculous, but Albanese putting himself front and centre saying that he's not woke, why on earth would you do that? Um, it's, it's mainly to appeal to what they still think middle Australia is, which is white, heterosexual, you know, um, yeah, m middle class men. Um, and that's about it. Anyone else's rights and talking about it, anyone else's rights, it, it in some way, shape or form threatens that idea of middle Australia and what we should all be striving for. Um, it's, it's very much about what they're trying to appeal to. But, um, but in doing that, you know, why on earth would fighting for the rights of a whole bunch of other groups um, be a bad thing? Why would that why would that not be something that you'd want to do, particularly if you're trying to claim a progressive agenda? It makes no sense to me. Cos, does that middle Australia that Celeste has outlined, does that really exist? And is no, Albanese we, jumping at shadows? We, we polled middle Australia on, on this very issue for Equality Australia. Um, and the answers were pretty clear. Doesn't exist doesn't exist at all. In fact, um, well, I think there was 75% uh, of those that we surveyed um, were really, really anti anyone that was attempting to pick on trans, trans people, trans kids, anything in this space, this, the middle Australia does not like. I think um, there's this culture war that the political class like playing in Canberra that I think the rest of this, the country has just moved on. Um, and we were very, very happy to actually work on that project with Equality Australia because we, when they approached us, I, you know, I, I did say to them, look, have confidence. We know, we, 
we've done enough research out there in the community. Most Australians, they just think this stuff is stuff of the last century, right? Um, most Australians are, are, are tolerant in this space and sick and tired of it being used as a political football. So who's advising, then, who's advising Albanese to take such a publicly conservative position? Obviously not you, uh, but, <laughs> but where... No. So they're just operating on old ideas and not, not on the reality. That's, that's what you're arguing. How many votes did it cost Daniel Andrews to be so um, uh, um, progressive on these issues? And I, I'm not sure if any of you saw his statements during that couple of days after that debate where he just said, why are adults you know, having this debate about how nasty we're all going to be on, 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 on certain kids in schools? Like, no one's ever raised this with me. His, his statement was spot on. He's lost no votes out of that. That's, you know, because he knows that Middle Australia uh, are modern. They, they have a view that everyone should be left alone and not not persecuted or targeted because of who they are. Um, I just don't understand why in federal politics there's this fixation on this 1956 version of Australia that no one actually else shares. <laughs> James, you got Bizarre. any insights on that? Uh I mean, I think the, the coalition seems to think that they're chasing a um, religious vote in the suburbs. Um, and I think that's it's also a shadow that the Labor Party has jumped at, unfortunately, mm. if you look at the way they position themselves around the, um, uh, the debates in Parliament around the religious discrimination bill, uh, that they were very concerned that they didn't, they weren't prepared to take the, the strident position that I think they, they could have around the issue um, to you know, reject the the idea of um, you know, not just the idea of expelling trans or um, gay kids from school, but also the, the idea that there should be discrimination against you know, teachers or people in, in other you know, work areas of work or professions, um, which, is, you know, which is still in the law um, at, at the moment, even though that bill um, hasn't passed. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think... It certainly doesn't seem to have worked to Morrison's advantage during uh, during this election campaign. I mentioned before the Teal Independents. Um, is anybody excited about them, other than the possibility that on the night of the twenty-first we might see Josh Frydenberg lose his seat, and which will obviously give us full all disclosure. a real full a real upper cause. Full, full disclosure on on their pollster. The Teal Independence Bolster. Yeah, yeah. All right. What are, what are you allowed to tell us? Uh, that um, the team that I, well, what am I allowed to tell you? Uh, we are we are dealing with a, another version of a progressive movement that is slicing through what was once conservative territory. I think it should be viewed as a positive movement. I think the 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 Greens' response to it's been very good. You know, Adam Bant's comments in relation to um, working with them has been very good. Um, I think, you know, Labor's been pretty quiet, doesn't have to be vocal in that space. Um, but, look, I think it's another sign of Australians getting pretty tired with what is going on in this country. And when we talk to the types of people that are considering voting for these independents, they are uh, tired of seeing women being victimised, minorities being victimised, no-one doing anything on climate change. Um and they've all, most of these voters have got a history of voting Liberal. So there's a, there's a cleavage occurring within that sort of conservative base that's, that, that's I think, you know, irreversible for the coalition. Um, and the other positive side, side of things is that most of the activists that are working on this campaign are wonderful human beings, young, progressive, passionate about the world around them, want to, do, want to make a difference. Um, and... Uh, very smart, switched on, uh, and I think they will succeed sooner or later in removing these liberal conservative MPs from their seats. Uh, I publicly make comments that these seats will fall. It's a matter of not if, but when. Could happen this round, might happen the next round. And the Liberal Party's response to them has been the same as Labor's response to the Greens. You know, for 15 odd years, we thought our solution to <laughs> combating the Greens was to use process and mechanics and party politics as a way of trying to convince 
a group of voters who've lost um, heart in what we stood for. And I think the coalition is about to discover that there's going to be a very long journey of this. James, what's, what's your take? Do you see the Teals as being, from a point of view of people on the left, do you see them as being more anything more than a, a convenient distraction for the Liberals? I mean, I think we all celebrated uh, when when Tony Abbott, you know, lost his seat at the last election, <laughs> and I think I think you know we'll be celebrating if Josh Frydenberg or one of the other Liberal front benches loses their seats as well. But I think the the note of caution I think we should have is that. Um, these independents are running in very, very wealthy seats. They're liberal blue ribbon seats. I think that colours the, the kind of things that these um, you know, candidates will stand for when they get to Canberra. You know, I think we've seen that um, with Zali Stegall, that you know, she wasn't prepared to support the, the Labor Party's uh, efforts to you know, increase taxes on property investors at the last election. You know, uh, I think the, the same is true in terms of her um, attitude to the CFMEU and, and unions, like she's not pro-union and was prepared to support some pretty dodgy Liberal legislation over that. So I think it'll be good if it causes problems for the Liberals, but I don't think we should uh, have a whole lot of hope that the, the Teal Independents are really going to uh, deliver the kind of change that, that we want if they get elected and um, if it, even if they're in a situation of uh, the balance of power. And over to you, Celeste, what's your view? Yeah, my views, my views, really mixed. On one hand, I I find it, I find it incredibly positive, and you know, um, we, we've covered it, but haven't directly stated it. They're, they're the teal independents because they're they're wealthy or you know, blue ribbon seat people um, who care about the environment. They're you know they. They've got environmental policies, and um, you know, as as well as other policies, obviously. But but um, after thirty years of neglect when it comes to environmental policy, and indeed active campaigns against any sort of forward momentum on protecting the environment and slowing um, climate change, it's it's left people. I guess they're appealing to to the liberal voters who have been left disillusioned by thirty years of misinformation um, and inaction. Um, so I find it exciting on that front. I find it exciting um, because because the big two have both failed when it comes to um, slowing climate change and educating the broader public and all of that. Um, and I'm honestly at the point where I think that um, a, a much stronger crossbench um, and more robust debate within the House of Representatives, not just the Senate, is sorely needed for, for there to be... Um, you know, more democracy in this country. I don't think that the two-party system is democratic. So it might help that the, the um, Teal independents getting into Parliament, just like Greens getting into Parliament, might actually increase democracy in that House. And for me, that's a really good thing. Um, yeah, you know, my... my um, my cautions are similar to what James has outlined. I mean, you know, they're, they're generally wealthy, anti-union, um, pro-business, you know, um, quite conservative on, on a number of other issues, and that's where my caution lies. But, but increased debate on the floor of Parliament and less power being held by the two majors and more, more democracy in, in um, politics, yeah, bring it on. They're going to make him pay for carrying a lump of coal into the parliament. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He's got dirt on his hands. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's been a fascinating discussion, but I, I know you're busy people and perhaps we should start to move to wrap it up. So I'm going to sort of put my, my final question in two parts. You can choose whether or not you answer the first part. First part, and I'll go down the screen as I see it. So, Cos Celeste James, 
my first question is, do you want to call who's going to win the election? Secondly, on the assumption that Labour forms the next government, majority or minority, as, as you see it, what's going to happen? What can we expect to see unfold in the next three to six months? So, Cos. Uh, minority Labour government is what I expect. Uh, although there is the possibility that the Dan war breaks and falls all over the Conservatives, as in they lose in a very big way. So um, that's one side, and three weeks to go, caveats, all of that. If Labor wins, what happens? Yeah, let's have that conversation when, they, when that happens, eh? Because <laughs> there's one thing vying for power, and they might be a totally different setup uh, and have a totally different mindset if they win. And, there are, and if they win as a minority, they're relying on Greens and independents to form that government. It could be a totally different government entirely. So I think, yeah, park that from, from, from my perspective. Okay. Celeste, how's your footy tipping? <laughs> my footy tipping is woeful. Um, but, but let's see how my political tipping goes. So I tend to agree. I think um, a minority Labor government is likely. If they do get into minority government, um, what happens next will all come down to who it is that they form that minority government with um, and what kind of what kind of deals are struck in that negotiation period to form the minority government? So if it is a more progressive progressive candidate, you know, maybe maybe Greens-dominated minority government, then we'll see better, um, better climate targets. We'll see, you know, um, probably a promise that the Religious Discrimination Act will... Uh, um, sorry, Bill will not be... Will not be retabled. We'll see. Um, we'll see stronger pushes on a number of different issues, particularly um, things like um, they'd have to cut some sort of deal when it comes to Medicare and um, and increasing um, it to cover things like mental and dental health. Um, yeah, um, if the Teal Independence win. Um, for me, that's up in the air, what they choose to negotiate on. Um, I, I will say again, probably better climate targets, but um, I don't see the rest of it necessarily happening. Yeah. Okay, James, lucky last. I mean, I think Labor will win the election. I mean, I mean, I think a Labor government in its own right is quite possible, but uh, I mean, even if there is a minority Labor government, I mean, I don't, I don't have as much confidence about the, uh, what can be extracted in terms of the balance of power, and that will significantly change uh, Labor's agenda. I mean, I think, as Celeste said earlier, Albanese's already made it very clear that he doesn't want to be seen to be, you know, in partnership with the Greens after the agenda. I think if they have to do deals, I think Labor would be much more inclined to go with some of the more conservative um whether it's Teal Independence or those the majority, like five other independents um, sitting in the lower house, some of them from from Liberal electorates, um, you know. So uh, I also think it's not the case that you know the balance of power necessarily forces Labor to deliver enormous um, you know concessions or changes in policies. Like Labor, you know, can simply strike a deal for um, you know support in terms of votes of confidence and not offer like a whole whole you know a whole lot more than they're offering in terms of an integrity commission and some more action than the liberals on, on climate change i think if there's going to be you know significant change it's actually going to require uh the movements outside of parliament to you know get back on the streets in a, a much more serious way i mean i think particularly over climate i think labor is going to be very defensive given the um the history of the way that Abbott was able to, you know, use the, the carbon tax against them and the way that they've moved, um, you know, uh, a step away from um, some of the things they talked about even at the last election in terms of lowering their, their climate targets and so on. So I think, uh, I think Labor is still going to be very cautious and it is going to mean we're going to need a much stronger um, push from below, like in terms of more concerted climate strikes and um, a much bigger climate movement, um, you know, to get the the kind of radical action that's really necessary on climate. Um, similarly, is true in terms of the 
the cost of living and that I think like like we need a much higher level of um, struggle to actually fight for, for better pay rises and uh, I think that's the, the way we're going to actually see more significant change is if, if Labor's base underneath it and the social movements and the, the union movement actually get serious about uh, you know, the kind of fight that we need to, to push um, for change. All right, well, thanks to all of you. I know you're busy people campaigning or working behind the scenes, trying to work out what's going on. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, my contribution is to say, vote early and vote often. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Thanks, comrades. Thank you.